It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters has been providing you with a personal financial hotline for all your questions about investments, estate planning, tax planning, money management, and retirement planning for over 30 years. Well, good evening, North Carolina, and thanks for joining us once again on Money Matters with the Lewis family. This is Linda Lewis. And this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And this is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. Hi, Bill. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Yes, hello. I'm uh, interested in uh, asking about when I can retire, if I can retire early. Good. Tell me a little bit about yourself. We'll see if I can tell you the answer. How old are you? 45. 45 years old. Married or single? Married. Married. Any children? One child. Living at home? Yes. Okay. One child at home. What's your income, Bill? Uh, it's high. It's 1.5. 1.5 million? Yes, sir. Per year? Yes. And how long is that due to last? Uh, as long as I continue to work. All right. How long? All right, well, t- all right, we've got your income. Obviously, your expenses aren't a million and a half, so technically, uh, you're... You're not having a problem covering your living expenses, I presume. No, not at all. Okay. Let's go to your assets. What does your investment portfolio look like? Um, I have a fairly extensive. I have a uh, IRA that's actually fairly fairly small with about 350 That's a SEP IRA. Okay. Hang on one second. got a SEP at 350000 Got gotcha. you. I have a uh, mutual fund portfolio. Okay. Of 1.5 in, in, in index funds. Boy, I wonder why you did that. You must have been hurt really bad. Did you have that in, in 2000, 2001, 2002? Uh, I've had a build. Uh, I, I put it there and forget about it. So you must have lost about half a bit at that time. I didn't. No, I, I, it, it was fine. I started putting in all the way. Through. It did not bother me. Well, I don't know how you could have been in the index funds through those three years and not having lost half of them unless... Well, I probably lost some, but I started putting in. I didn't make that kind of income until the last uh, four years or so. Okay. All right. So you've got a million and a half in mutual funds, in, in index funds. What else do you have? Uh, about uh, 100 in stock funds. 100,000 in, in, uh, in stocks or in stock funds? Uh, individual stocks. In stocks? Funds. Okay. Uh, yes, 100 in stocks. My wife has her own portfolio of about 125 in mutual funds. All right. I have 170 in a 529 plan for my son. What's that in? Most of it's in a uh, in index funds as well, in a total stock market and a uh, 500 index fund. All right. Is that a North Carolina 529 or is it out of another state? Uh, out of state. 
one Virginia, one Iowa. All right. I have two commercial properties mm -hmm. that uh, are worth uh, 1.5, of which I owe 1.2, and those cover their costs per year with okay. rental. Yeah, 1.2 million of uh, mortgage debt on that. Correct. Okay. And then uh, several other properties uh, combined worth of uh, 600, of which I owe 400, plus my personal residence, which is worth about 750, and I owe about 350. All right. So you're carrying about two million dollars of debt. First of all, I notice. Yeah. And your question is, when can you retire? The question was going to ultimately turn upon financial independence, which is based upon your living expense needs. Do you have an idea what it costs to support you at your desired lifestyle? Sure. Only the my living expenses themselves are not that high, probably in the 200 range. It's just the, the carrying cost of the investment right, properties. Right. Yeah, no, I want, I want to, you're right. I want to separate those. So you think about 200000 would support your desired lifestyle. Yes. All right. The first thing is... You're going to need about four million three hundred thousand of total investment portfolio to be able to support the kind of lifestyle that you're living and also pay the taxes on it. Got it. However, that also assumes that you have uh, that you've gotten rid of the commercial property. The commercial property sounds to me. I mean, personally, I would say that's a real losing deal. To carry $1.2 million of debt and have only a few hundred thousand of equity and to know that, you know, you could be leaving your wife a big mess. I mean, I don't know many wives would be happy to re inherit $2 million of debt. Uh, I, I've dealt with a number of widows with mortgages in the last 25 years. And so that well, seems... It's a, grade, it's a grade A commercial property that, that has a 15-year lease and... Uh the purpose was to, uh, you know, turn it over to a 1031 exchange uh, in due course. Yeah, well, if you're asking me my opinion, that's a bad strategy and it's it's something you should get rid of huh. because it's not going to help you achieve your goals of being able to, uh, at least if you're interested in retiring now and becoming financially independent now, you want to move in the opposite direction. 1031 is simply delaying the pain. It doesn't yep. do anything for you and there are a number of complications that are there, uh, the capital gain tax and so forth, you'd have to deal with it. But bottom line is how to achieve $4.3 million. Your mutual funds are a million and a half, and your SEP IRA three fifty that puts you up at a million eight five. You add the um the hundred and twenty five of other mutual funds and the hundred thousand two twenty five. So you're at about two and a half million. So mm -hmm. So what you want to do is you want to go ahead and aggressively start what we call a pay-yourself-first plan to see how rapidly you could get yourself to that point. In other words, if indeed your expenses are only 200000 and if indeed the commercial property is paying its own debt-carrying cost, then you should be able to put aside a very strong amount on a monthly basis. If you do that, working with a spreadsheet and working with a software program with the, uh, that, that, that you know that a, a decent financial planning firm should have, we, we we've got a pretty high, highly sophisticated one in our firm. But working that way, you ought to be able to come up with well, how long would it take me to accumulate 
4.3 million. Now, starting with about two and a half million, you have to have some assumption of what you're going to, of what your money's going to grow at. Mm-hmm. I would get rid of all your index funds because that, that you're doing nothing but waiting for the next disaster. Index funds are simply riding the market. And that's not why you should be in mutual funds. You should always be in mutual funds because of managers, because of men and women who give you some logic of what, why you want to give them money to just sock your money away into a, uh, you know, into a, a fund that's going to ride the market. I've had more people come to me who show me that, you know, they lost half of their retirement account by riding through with index funds. So we don't want to, we don't want to be that way. We want to be, we want to have a, a philosophy of asset management that is proactive, not reactive. Our number in Raleigh is 872-7000. That's USA 7000. But right now, I think that you're, what's, what's basically missing in everything you've got is that you don't have any asset, allocation. asset allocation. Yeah, there is no right asset allocation. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's all hit and miss. And uh, I mean, you've done a great job of accumulating, but... If, the, if your goal is to retire, how are we going to get there sooner than later, right? Well, you want to protect yourself on the downside, on the loss side, not to go ahead and just uh, think of the upside or think of the accumulation side. Right. And so there needs to be an overall asset allocation model superimposed upon what you have and what you will be putting in. Now, the other part of the equation is your SEP at your age is going to also require... A strategy to help support you. Yep. That can be done. The IRS does allow you an exception, even though you'd be under 59 and a half. There is a way that we have clients get by that using Section 72T. But again, everything is based upon how it's all allocated according to some model that you're comfortable with or that we're comfortable with is going to go ahead and do what, you, what, we, what we think it's going to do. And then move along in that in that direction. The other thing I don't like is I don't know why you've got a hundred thousand dollars in individual stocks. I wouldn't have you in any individual stocks. I'm not a I'm not a professional stock picker. So uh, so then how did you pick are, them? Uh, these are companies that I've become familiar with that uh, I wanted to wanted to invest in. Uh huh. Well, generally we tell people. Don't don't that's do why that. There's, that's why there's so little there because I really do not feel comfortable doing. Yeah, uh, almost always we advise people never invest uh, individual stocks and never invest in companies that you think you know a lot about. All the Krispy Kreme employees really learned that lesson not long ago. I've had more IBMers in the last 20 years who have groaned as they've learned that lesson than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because no one ever knows, and if they do know, the market's already priced it. There's nothing that you would know that others aren't, that, you know, that that the professional mutual fund managers aren't knowing. Sometimes it's cool to own stocks, but it's a risky yeah. posture as you go yeah. forward. But where right? else would you diversify here? I'm, I mean, do you, you just think the index funds are too low risk? I mean, too less of non-aggressive? No, 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 no. Too high risk, not too low risk. In other words, when everybody lost 50% of their retirement funds, between 2000 and 2000 and, and early 2003, our clients actually made money. And it's because we chose managers. Their goal was to exceed the market. The index is what they go against. So if the index goes down, 
then that's a guarantee that you've gone down. And if the index goes down 30%, that's a guarantee that you're going to lose 30%. <laughs> So, so I Doug, wouldn't do that. Are you to, saying to to go into a stock mutual funds versus stock individual stocks? No. No, there there are three different things we're talking about at the same time. You can buy an individual stock or you can buy into a mutual fund which is a basket of maybe 100 stocks. Right. Or you can buy into a basket of mutual a basket of stocks a mutual fund that has a manager. Right. And, and there's a major difference. And one, both of the mutual funds will give you diversification, which is safer than the individual stock. Because the only reason you ever buy a stock is because you're waiting to sell it. You never buy a stock because it's, it has no value on its own. It's, it's a worthless piece of paper. It has, no, it has no value according to the IRS. If you lose it, you tear it up or anything, as opposed to a bond or something, which is a debt security. So on the other hand, if you have a mutual fund, you don't really own well, I mean, t legally you own a fund, but what you really are doing is you're putting money in the hands of a, of a manager, of a trader, who's making the decisions for you of when to buy or when to sell. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I do think diversification is the crucial issue. The question then comes to how many different mutual funds, and there are other investment types that I like, by the way. I think you should have REITs in your portfolio. There should be real estate investments in a portfolio. I have a millions of dollars in real estate portfolio. <laughs> In REITs? Well, not in REITs, but in real estate. That's, uh, well, that's again, a segment of my portfolio. Well, again, that's the same. That's exactly the same problem. There it is again. Anytime you own anything individually, you're the guru. And that means you think you're smarter than the other guy. And at least in my case, I'm convinced I'm not smarter than the other guy. I'm convinced that if I try to be the winner, whether it's in Las Vegas whether it's buying a piece of real estate or whether it's buying a stock, there's somebody out there who's smarter than I, and I'm waiting for an accident to happen. And I've seen it happen to so many hundreds and hundreds of clients through the years that I'm pretty convinced that's what happens. But the REITs are very different. If you go into a mutual fund where there are managers that are trading commercial REITs, buying and selling and holding them for the then you're not you're not the owner of the of the of the building you're not carrying the debt you don't have any 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 debt liability do you see the difference yes of course yes so i don't i don't know if that helps you or not but that's at least the the way that i would answer the question when can i retire as soon as you have accumulated 4.3 million and as soon as we're comfortable that it's positioned properly then that's you know that's the way you do it. And uh, Bill, if you if you'd like further information or any other questions, give us a call at the office. That's well, in Raleigh, and that number is eight seven two seven thousand. That's USA seven thousand. All right, you have a good night. Thank you, Bill. We enjoyed your call. Take care. Interesting call. You know, uh, obviously he's had a change in his situation, and you can tell because he's only accumulated about one point eight million, and. As he said, it wasn't that way four or five years ago, three, four years ago, but right. with an income, income of a million five, then it looks very good if he can hold that income and get it, the excess built into a portfolio properly, then he will be able to achieve his goals. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Doug, I was wondering if maybe we could go over a mutual fund selection checklist that might help our listeners. 
That's a great idea, Linda. Mutual funds really can be excellent investments for beginning investors and sophisticated investors alike. However, the decision process can take a lot more time than you have to spare, really. So here's a quality control checklist that can help folks streamline the selection process and make the final mutual fund selection. First, do the objectives of the mutual fund you're considering meet your personal investment objective? Have you emotionally committed to leaving your money in this investment long-term through the ups and downs in the market cycle? Right? That's right. Is the fund that you're considering part of a family of funds? Have you reviewed the fund's 12-month, 5-year, and 10-year track record? Is the current portfolio manager the same manager who produced the track record that you reviewed? Have you reviewed the costs associated with the fund, management costs, marketing costs, acquisition costs, and liquidation costs? Do you have the privilege of telephone exchanges between mutual funds in the family? Like, is there a cost for exchanges, or is a specified time frame required to elapse between exchanges? Have you investigated the fund's reputation for investor services? Have you researched whether the fund has grown considerably in size over the last five years, and you really need to consider whether this will affect performance? And is the investment philosophy of the fund the same today as it was five years ago and ten years ago? And last, have you investigated the tax aspects of this fund? That's about 11 questions that people should consider uh, in, in looking at the mutual funds that they are selecting, correct? You know, Lynn, so often people go into an excellent fund for the very wrong reasons, or they go into the wrong uh, uh, fund or a bad fund uh, with just too little education and not knowing what is a proper checklist to go through the selection of the fund. And really working with the help of an advisor, I think, is crucial, especially an advisor that has a checklist to walk down. And if you can't go through the individual checklist yourself, then you should make sure that your advisor is able to answer all of the questions on these 10 points in the checklist. Seek competent financial advice. And if you have any financial questions, call me at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. Doug, earlier you you had one of the questions on the checklist uh, had to do with considering uh, a fund that's part of a family of funds. Could you maybe explain that? How how does that work? Yeah, I guess, Lynn, those of us in the financial and investment world, we have our own jargon, which we assume everybody else in the world knows. A family of mutual funds is a common term. You know, a mutual fund itself, Linda, is a pool of investments. It's not one investment. It's a giant pool maybe of 100 stocks or 100 bonds or uh, a mixture of stocks and bonds. And this pool is managed by a man or a woman that's a mutual fund manager who is sort of like a stockbroker. He's buying and selling, buying and selling out of the fund. And you put your money into the pool and you've got a little piece of all of them. So you've diversified your investments and safeguarded yourself by having a small amount of money blended in with a whole bunch of of other people in a larger pool. Now, that's a mutual fund, of course, which we all know. A family of mutual funds is a company that sponsors more than one mutual fund. It's one company that might have a mutual fund of stocks for those investors that want to be playing the stock market but want to be a little more conservative than doing it themselves so they would go into a stock mutual fund. And then there might be another mutual fund that is just for conservative investors that want to be in Ginnie Mae's 
And that mutual fund has a whole bunch of Ginnie Mays, which are Government National Mortgage Association bond pools. And then another mutual fund might be a mutual fund, which is just a portfolio of international stocks for those people that want to have money in the international arena. And they want a manager who is buying and selling international stocks for them. And then there might be another mutual fund, which has just government bonds in it. And again, they want a manager who will decide when to sell a low-yielding government bond and buy a higher-yielding government bond, etc., and have their money in a pool with a bunch of other people, but all of their money being invested in government bonds. Well, each of these mutual funds can be under one giant family head or family heading so that actually there are different mutual funds for different types of people's objectives. and. One way of selecting mutual funds is just trying to pick the best mutual fund track record that meets what attracts you. The danger in that very often is, especially if it's a fund that has a load, that's another term for commission going in, that if you don't like the performance of that fund after a few years and you want to move the money from that fund over to another mutual fund, if it's not part of a family, that is of a fund group, then you will have to pay a second commission going into the next one. Whereas typically the mutual fund families allow you to move from one of their mutual funds, let's say their European stock fund. You can do exchanges. Within yes, the we fund. call that exchanges from one mutual fund to the other, to the other, to the other. And those are almost always commission-free with no charges. And those are very attractive benefits that the families of mutual funds offer. I do confess that I prefer the family of fund approach. So people should look into this or check into this and when they deal with their financial planner? I think looking at the consistency of the family, actually, Linda, is far more important than looking at the consistency of a fund manager. Very often, we are looking at a track record of a manager who is no longer there. He's been moved to another mutual fund in that family. What are some of the major types, the five major types of mutual funds that most people look at? Well, Linda, it's really hard to go ahead and encompass the whole world of mutual funds in one quick breath, but we could make a quick broad stroke and say that there are aggressive growth funds, and then there are growth funds, and then there are growth and income funds, and there are income funds, and there are sector funds. And that would be one way to look at them. They subcategorize into about 30 or 40 subcategories, but those five broad categories, aggressive growth funds, growth funds, growth and income funds, income funds, and sector funds are the five broad types. What about government funds? Government funds, Linda, are one of the, they would fall under the category of income funds. You see, income funds can be either investing in high-yielding stocks or bonds, and government funds are investing in government bonds, and the aim is to achieve high current income with maximum safety of principle. Okay. Thank you. You're sure welcome. If you'd like some further information, I'll be happy to send you some. If you'll call the office at 872-7000, and then we can give you some more detailed assistance. And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. DougAndLinda.com. What's new in the area of investment planning? Here's a question about money fund safety. How safe is... A money market mutual fund, don't they invest in banks? Yes. Some money funds invest in bank CDs, but the funds are still safe. The funds evaluate the bank's safety carefully before they buy the CDs. And if you happen to still be worried, 
about your money market fund safety, then you can move over to a money market fund that invests only in U.S. government securities, and some of them do. But I don't think that there's a real risk factor there. Doug, let's take a caller now. Well, Dean, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? I've got a couple of questions. What kind of cost are you looking at for, for financial services such as yours? Well, I never go ahead and mention advisory fees on the air because they differ according to clients. We charge at our practice. We charge by the hour. Some planners go ahead and give a flat annual fee. We do offer that to certain clients. Other planners go ahead and charge any number of types of either by the hour or by the quarter, by the month, by the year, by the plan, and so forth. But if you'll call the office during the week, Linda will go ahead and she can discuss that with you a little more. My job tonight is to really to sort of educate you as to what's out there and how a planner functions. Okay, good. good. The other question I had is about re- retirement. I'm sort of remiss in getting any retirement plan started, but uh, I recently uh, talked to an insurance agent who suggested that I or suggested a plan for me, and, and when he brought forth the plan, it essentially was a whole life policy uh, and uh, investing a certain amount in that each month and it building up over a period of time. Uh, and I really was trying to find out if there, you know, one, is that is that a sound way to go about it? I mean, obviously, I guess I can use the additional coverage, but I feel like I have enough life insurance coverage. Life insurance is an arrangement between you and an insurance company that you will pay a small amount of money, called a premium, as you and I know, and that at the time that you die, the insurance company will pay your beneficiary a whole bunch of money. And if you go ahead and buy a $100,000 policy or a $500,000 policy, and you go ahead and make the first monthly premium of maybe it's only $500, and you die the next month, then your wife won because she got a half million dollars and you only cost her $500. Okay, that's the gamble, and that's called, that's called risk management. That's exactly what it is legally. It's risk management. Interestingly enough, it is against the law in North Carolina, according to the insurance commissioner's regulations, to use the term investment with regard to insurance. One of the things he was saying was that, if, one, it was, would accumulate, the money would accumulate tax-free. When you think about what's accumulating in your insurance policy, what you're doing is you're paying more money than the real cost of that insurance, and it's going into an accumulation account that is cash value. But before it gets into that cash value account, First come the commissions that go out, then come the uh, administrative cost of running the insurance company and so forth. So that cash value, yes, you are able to borrow out your own cash value. And yes, it does accumulate tax-free, but my goodness, you, if, if your goal is to accumulate money, do it over in a mutual fund or an investment. Because the day you start to take money out of that insurance policy, out of that cash value account, you're basically taking money from your future widow. You see what I mean? You're borrowing from the death benefit. And if you borrow out long enough, you'll collapse the insurance policy. So don't confuse the two. Insurance is not a retirement vehicle. It's not an investment. So essentially, if I've got enough money to invest an additional sum of money each month, it would be better off even if it's not a tax or maybe there's other way to do it tax-free. Absolutely. First, we do need to look at the risk coverage necessary and buy an inexpensive 20-year level term policy if we need to go ahead and have a certain amount to cover. But the amount of money for retirement, you need to put that money monthly into an investment program. But I just wanted everybody out there to understand that insurance is for death protection and investments are investments, and we shouldn't confuse those two. And if you have further questions, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we appreciate your calling. 
And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. DougAndLinda.com. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. So, in total financial planning, what is the first thing after we've gathered all of the data and about the client? What's the first thing that we need to address? We need to analyze their situation, find out what their current financial status is. And then after we've analyzed it, then we need to go ahead indeed and look at what is the need for insurance. What is the need? That's right. Yeah. That's right. exactly right. So it's not a matter of we ignore insurance. Oh, no, no, but no, insur- no. But if it's a single person who has no wife or children, then probably no need for any insurance at all. If it's a married couple... Uh, and with young children, and maybe one the the one earns the live the the, the income, and the others a stay at home spouse. Then that income is a needs to be needs protected. To be yeah. Yeah, so all of that needs to be covered immediately, first of all. But from there on, now we don't confuse insurance as an investment vehicle. No, 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 no. And we need to understand that uh, if a person purchases insurance. They're transferring risk, right? That's why they're doing it. That's exactly right, Linda. Um, and if they purchase the insurance, there's a commission attached to that insurance. Which is fair. That's fine as long as it's needed to cover that, tri- that, exactly. that risk. So uh, when people buy insurance, they need to ask, how much is this going to cost me? And how much are you, insurance person, getting paid for the transaction? But the more important thing is to remember that insurance is not an investment. That's right. So then after we've covered that, then we do need to go ahead and go to what about accumulating for investments for my financial future? That's exactly right, because the probability is much higher that you're not going to die than you are going to die. Yeah. And I I think, um, you know, you have to you have to be careful to not merge goals or merge parts of your financial planning into one and try and make one thing solve two problems. You really have to know insurances for risk management and covering that income that might be lost and retirement planning is retirement planning. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you that, know, there, and I, I was glad that he asked the question about what does it cost? Because if you ask that question to somebody you call on the phone and they say, oh, we will give you a free meeting, then just remember there is no free lunch. There's no free lunch. If somebody says, oh, we'll be happy to meet with you for free, then as you said, Linda, there's got to be something somewhere. So that should be a warning right away. And just as he was concerned about, and which is why there he called There may be us, a sales pitch coming. Well, there, there has to be. I mean, it's not a matter. Nobody meets for free and does things for free, obviously. So you just need to go ahead and realize, as he did, he, he, should, he wanted to pay for advice. And I was and, glad. And it's important to remember that each person, I agree with both of you, that each person's situation is different. And the need, whatever the need is, it exists. So what you right. want to do is get proper advice to see, to have an analysis, to look at your situation, to sort it all out, to ask the questions that you've had that you wanted to ask, and to get proper answers. Right. And you know what's funny is that, um, just as an aside, there was an article recently um, about how, in the same way that this question was merging together, should my insurance policy be, life insurance policy be paying for my, uh, so, you know, uh, helping me fund my retirement in the world of securities licenses and life insurance policies. I'm sorry, life insurance um, or just insurance licenses. That's what I mean. They are often merged and people don't know who can sell what. 
it's been a long time coming, but I, I'm really happy to see that some former securities regulators are now bringing it to the table that there is an abuse happening. Now, there's some older stockbrokers who lost their licenses, but they found a creative way to keep selling investments to their clients by using their insurance license. And this is where the regulators are honing in. Because basically, a salesperson can pitch a variety of financial products if they are covered, wrapped wrapped by an insurance (laughs) wrapper and everything. So this is uh, this is this is the new disclosure that happened. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal within the last week. There was an article. uh, If you do something bad enough to lose your securities license, then this one person says you probably shouldn't have an insurance license either. And the I think the that individual was one of the regulators in one of the states and everything. A lot of states actually do have some uh, some provisions to start stopping this matter. Because if a person has done something bad and lost their stockbroker's license, their securities license, then it's my feeling they should be prohibited from now just doing the same thing under a, under an, in, in, in insurance, a, a insurance license. license. Yeah, typically states require brokers to have securities licenses to sell financial instrument, instruments such as stocks and bonds. Insurance licenses cover products such as fixed annuities, which guarantee the buyer will earn a minimum interest rate for the term of the contract. And variable annuities, however, or variable annuities, however, are considered securities at the federal level, but may be treated, but may be treated as securities or insurance products, um, or by both, you know, but there's a, there's a, there's a, um, confusion as to, is it the federal or the state saying that the variable annuity or the fixed annuity is a, is a security or an insurance product? The actual article pointed to different states that have regulations that coordinate the two and those that don't. And the article said that states without coordination, brokers then fall into a regulatory black hole with nobody watching them. And that means for the public, it's a disaster waiting to happen. So exactly as Linda said, you should find out how the compensation is going to be given to you. Are you getting an insurance commission or are you uh, licensed as a stockbroker? What is it? But the article was a big warning. And I think we're going to see more of that this year with the new regulatory environment that we're under. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call us at Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000 in Raleigh. And if you'd like to join us on the show, call us on the open line at 919-860-9783. That's 919-860-WPTF. And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. DougAndLinda.com. Let's take a caller now. All right, Keith, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Yes, good afternoon, sir. Under what circumstances may one withdraw from their IRA? I understand there's educational purposes, health problems, and or if you're planning to buy a residence. I would like to buy another home in another state, staying over one half year in that particular state. What's your income, Keith? Oh, half a million. All right. You've got a half million dollar income coming in, and your expenses, I'm sure, are less than a half million a year. Much less, yes. Then uh, what is the, how much is in your IRA? 
Oh, probably about uh, 300000 400000 something of that nature. Unless you retired from another company and you rolled over that old retirement plan into an IRA. Correct. Is that what happened? Yes, sir. Okay. Then you have a rollover IRA. What you're remembering is that there are ways that you can go ahead and, re- and remove money from a retirement plan and not pay the 10% penalty tax. But this money has never been taxed, and the IRS will get its tax. The additional 10% penalty sometimes can be applied. Uh-huh. Now, you could get this money out because you're over 50, and we could do it in a series of systematic payments. But no matter how you get it out, you're going to pay tax on it. Okay. To take it out and pay tax on it now, I don't think that's the way that I would advise you. Hey, Keith, have you, have, have you ever worked with a financial planner? I did work with one at uh, one time, and there's uh-huh. good and there's bad. And I received your portfolio initially, and obviously uh, Mr. Lewis uh, has tremendous credentials regarding same. Uh, it's just that I want to give you a call and ask you a question over the phone. And we appreciate your calling. So, you know, if we can be of any further assistance to you, just give us a call. Okay. In the meantime, okay. have a pleasant evening. All Bye. right. Thank you, Keith. To any of our other listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. If you have some financial planning concerns or questions about your situation, get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner. You know, Lynn, uh, one of the things that... uh, that Keith is remembering, and it's really interesting the, the the rules that happen on retirement plans and how to get around, or how to, I shouldn't say get around them, how to maximize the rules. Keith's question was not one that a lot of people have, but a lot of people want to know, is there a way to avoid the 10% penalty tax? And yes, there is a way to avoid the 10% penalty. Now, you cannot avoid the income tax when you take the money out, because that money has never been taxed. But that extra 10%, which on taking out, you know, a significant amount is significant, right? can be avoided by using one of the very little known rules called the series of systematic payments. And the series of systematic payments will work. He could actually have set up, if he wanted to get money out, which he doesn't need to, but if he wanted to, he could set it up over a period of nine years and take the same amount out each year for nine years and avoid that 10% penalty. People generally have, um, some people are confused uh, about their retirement plans, particularly if they separate from a company. And, you know, they, they feel that well, now that I'm leaving this company, can I access this money? Or maybe there's the temptation to do so. But they don't always understand that there is a tax, right, Doug, and a penalty. So you're really not getting everything that uh, you thought you were getting because Uncle Sam's going to take his portion. Well, it's back to social capital. Social capital is the part of your wealth that's not yours. It's destined for society. Learning how to control your social capital is the crucial distinguishing feature. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And you can also go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. DougAndLinda.com. Well, Deborah, What is new in the world of REITs? Well, I think we need to remind our, our, our listeners that REIT 
are, that's an acronym for Real Estate Investment Trust. These are very attractive investments that get a lot of news because they have a special tax law that says they do not pay taxes. It's tax-free at the corporate level if they pay out to their shareholders 90% of all taxable income coming in. So a real estate investment trust is a pool of real estate bringing in a lot of income, which is rent, and it has to be paid out to the investors. So those are REITs, but there's different kinds of REITs. And, there are, and, and these fall into the category of alternatives. But there's different kinds of REITs out there. There's office building REITs. There's healthcare REITs. There's shopping center REITs. There's triple net lease real, uh, retail REITs. Essential asset REITs. There are essential asset REITs. All of these pay very high. And we're going to hear more and more. Uh, every, uh, every week, there's more and more in the Wall Street Journal on the REITs becoming more and more attractive. There are those that trade and there's that don't trade. So keep your eye open. There are a lot of alternatives. There are a lot of folks out there with questions about IRAs and 401ks. Well, it's, you know, it's a lot of those, uh, yeah, 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 people you're talking about, <laughs> Linda. I mean, this is, this is the, this is the generation that's running into the issues of we're coming into that period when the IRS says they want their piece of the action. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, a, a woman who is a widow inherited her husband's IRA last year when he died at the age of 67. So the wife is 64, and she's wondering, is she required to take a minimum distribution? No, not if she leaves the IRA with his name on it and with her named as the beneficiary, then she'll have to take a required minimum distribution in the year that he would have turned 70 and a half, and the RMD will be based on on your or her life expectancy. If she rolled it into her own IRA, then she can wait until she turns 70 and a half before taking a distribution. The RMD, the required distribution, and all future years is going to be based on her life expectancy. Now, this is an interesting situation. And this is, well, you know, I'm just thinking that this is a situation where it would behoove her to work with a certified financial planner. Absolutely. Absolutely. The beneficiary IRA, which is described in one situation versus the rollover to the spouse is another one. Uh, you can really uh, get a lot of mileage or hurt yourself a lot if you don't work with someone who understands all of the rules. Exactly. Because, you know, some folks at 64, they're professionals in the field and they have high income. Others are just homemakers. And maybe they, you know, stayed home with the children and didn't really have a career. But still, you know, in retirement, you want to plan for the fun things that you want to do, whether it's traveling or spending time with the grandkids or gifting to your children. So call us at Lewis Financial Management and write down your questions. We'll be happy to schedule an appointment with you. The number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. All right, Doug, let's take another call. Margaret, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I don't know whether you will be can answer this question or not, but my brother recently passed away and he didn't leave a will. And he told several people that he wanted my son to have his house. Uh-huh. Well, I don't have a problem with this, except I have two other children. And what procedure can I go through to give him the house? To can give... I give it to him before I sell it or now? Well, you inherited the house. Right. Well, and has the estate been probated? Not yet. Well, technically, I don't think that you can... Now, how many heirs... 
Just one. You're the only one? Right. Mm -hmm. I well, can't... Everything he has is mine, and I'm the administrator of, of his estate. Right. Uh, this is a, a, a question for an estate attorney. I'll take a shot at it, and I'll qualify by saying I'm not, uh, I'm not an attorney. Mm -hmm. I'm a financial planner, and I work with a number of estate attorneys. But, and if you, by the way, if you call my office, I'll give you the name of a qualified estate attorney. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I believe that, you're, that you as the administrator of the estate have a fiduciary responsibility to treat the estate properly uh, under all guidelines until you've completed the administration and the probate process is finished. Mm -hmm. I know that there are family members who, when they are uh, executors or administrators, they do things because they know that nobody's going to object to it. The objection would come from a disgruntled heir. Oh, well, good. And if you would like any further information, you can call us at the office at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. I'll be happy to send you some information. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate it. Well, you're certainly welcome, Margaret. Thank you for well, calling. Well, Doug, another situation that um, comes up is about creating a special needs trust for a spouse. And uh, this particular person said that her husband had Alzheimer's disease and she and she had heart disease and she asked if I die first he won't be able to manage the money I have his financial power of attorney should I set up a trust this is a very uh, um, unfortunately not as uncommon as you would think uh, situation and we hear them in our office quite a bit special needs trust are the issue these trusts take effect when you die and will provide for a spouse who has an illness that impairs his decision-making capabilities. You put in enough money to pay for anticipated care costs for his life expectancy. You can use the rest of the money to pay for your own expenses and to leave to your children or other heirs. A special needs trust protects the spouse's ability for certain government benefits, such as Medicaid, and then assets in the trust are not counted when eligibility for nursing home payments is considered. Then the money in the trust can pay for other services, such as a home health aid, private nursing home room, wheelchair, and so on. The answer there is yes, a special needs trust. For many of our senior couples that, you know, as we age, our health starts to go down. And in some cases, I know that we've had some of our clients recently that have had questions about, we're really thinking about downsizing. We'd like to get a, a house that's maybe a ranch and forget about a second floor because, you know, as you get older, your knees, arthritis, heart trouble, etc. And so it is important whether, and if you're listening tonight on the air, maybe you're the, the child of aging parents and you have questions and maybe you're wondering, should you have that conversation with mom and dad? And if you have had any thoughts, write down the kinds of questions that you, you know, sometimes you just need to have a little script because sometimes, you know. What kind we, of things you want to get answered when you go in to meet with a financial planner? And what kinds of questions do you have about your situation? Oh, yes. And if you're the child, 
sometimes you're ashamed to ask mom and dad because they haven't volunteered the information, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, Doug, when you were, before your dad passed away? It took a while before dad would totally open up, even though it was my profession. But he was so happy once he did open up because basically... There's the comfort. Yeah, there's the comfort that it's under control. And then even he, he commissioned me to go ahead and make sure I took care of mom after <laughs> he passed away. And, and with mom, there's the same thing. This type of uh, of of second generation type of planning is crucial because things do occur and people get weaker and all these needs surface. We have Ray from Cary on hold. Ray, this is Doug Lewis, Deborah Lewis, Linda Lewis. How can we help you this evening? Hello, gentlemen and ladies. Got a question for you. Fire away. Very much appreciate your show. It's great. Thank uh, you. Just a real simple question for you. This is certainly less complicated, I think, than what you normally deal with. But to make a long story short, um, father passed away. Um, mom, of course, is still here, thank God, and she's got the house, but she wants to, you know, basically, since I've been the caregiver for years, um, and, you know, for lack of a, a better explanation, you know, the property she wants to leave to me. Okay. Um, and, you know, the house and everything basically in it. Wanted to find out, um, is there a better situation tax-wise to do that? In other words, instead of just having it in the will that it is for me, um, is there something that, that she should be doing, or me, uh, who is the power of attorney um, for her, um, that would help that situation when, unfortunately, the day comes where that occurs? Right. Very good question. We get it a lot with our clients. Uh, Deborah, you want to start off? Uh, yes. There, there are going to be um, two questions. Uh-huh. Uh, the first is going to be, is it going to make a difference if you get it now or you inherit it? And Doug, that's usually where we begin the conversation. Right. We have to get basis and we have to deal with the step up in basis rules. First of all, what did the house cost? The house cost originally, they bought it uh, 96 here in Cary, North Carolina. And I think they paid about $153,000 for the house. It's all right. Probably and- worth, at least as far as I can tell right now, in this crazy environment, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 250 all right. All right. So that's going to be what we call your basis. Right. No, the basis is one hundred and fifty-three thousand. Yes, sir. One hundred and fifty-three thousand. What they paid is going to be what you call your basis. All right. Okay. So now we have to understand that if she were to give you the house today, correct, which she could do by deeding it over to you, mm-hmm. then she gives you the value of the home, which is two hundred fifty thousand, and she gives you the basis also of one hundred fifty-three thousand. Okay. Now. If you later on after she passes away, mm-hmm. if you later on sell it, then you will pay tax on $100,000 of capital gains. Assuming that, that, that we were just going to use your appreciated value of what it's worth today, $250,000. Right. Right. So right. that 100000 so is about twenty. Yeah, that's about twenty dollars or $25,000 of taxes. And I don't mean to interrupt you. It, it, the, the, you know, the situation would be, for sure, um, without getting into too much, because I know we only got so much limited time here, is that, um, you know, when she does pass away, um, I am in a financial position. I'm, uh, you know, partially disabled. Um, and so it would be a situation where I could not afford to keep this house, which I would love to do. But it would be an immediate sale. 
Okay. So okay. I'd have to. I'd have to get out. All Very right. good. All right. So now Deborah's going to tell you the All way right. to sell a tax break. So Ray, yeah. the best thing in your situation, it appears to be, just from the little bit we we know right now, sure. is that if you were to instead were to inherit it okay. at her death, instead of receiving instead it of as receiving a gift. it as a gift during her lifetime, right? You get an immediate step up in basis, meaning. At her death, mm-hmm. you would receive an asset that would be worth the fair market value or, or you know, as of her date of death. Sure. So now you would have received an asset with a basis of 250000 And a value meaning, of 250000 And a value of 250000 right. So when you needed to sell it, you know, a month later after everything's, you know, settled sure. and everything, right. you now would pay zero. Really? Yes. Taxes. Interesting. If you, because if if we know that the end result is whether it's just a not needed home or we sure. need the assets home, if that if there's definitely that situation, we want to inherit the asset. We want to get the step up in basis. So really, the only expenses that I should incur yes. when, once this occurs is obviously you know the usual stuff that occurs. But if I hire a real estate agent and he gets his or he or she gets the um, you know the usual six percent or whatever it is, um, you know. Is there any other besides, you know? Well, the only other question I would have is, I mean, unless there's a mortgage on it, but yeah, you just sell it and keep the proceeds. There is. Then you. How, then much is the, how much is the mortgage on it now? Yeah, that's that's the, the sad part is that, uh, you know, I would say at this point, the house, like I said, is, is probably worth 250 and the um, the amount that's owed right now is probably about 130 All right. So we take. We, 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 we take these three points one at a time. Mm-hmm. First of all, at death, let's say, God forbid, she died this year. Right. All right. $250,000 mm-hmm. is, your, is your home, the fair market value. All right. right. The basis, of course, has been stepped up. So the basis goes from 153000 to 250000 So zero tax as far as capital gain to the IRS. There's nothing owed to the IRS. Now, yeah. what about the mortgage company? Okay, right. the they mortgage company. Off, obviously. That's right. They want their portion, which is. Oops, I lost my number. How that's much? Okay, about one hundred and thirty or something. One hundred and thirty like thousand. That. That's right. So you get. So you would end up with one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. There'd be no other cost. There might be a little bit of real estate taxes that are owed on it if she hasn't paid the taxes right. on it. Uh, and as you say, the uh, uh, the commission to the real estate broker. But there's no tax. Right. Taking in those three points, Doug, there's no way he would want to have it received during her lifetime. I mean, oh, no, the, no. with, with want, the mortgage yeah. and the tax, you would have eliminated anything. And you obviously you want to step up in basis. Right. 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 So the bottom line is, is leave it just the way it is. Yes, sir. In the will, just that's that. That's right. That way, that way, mom takes care of you after you've been taking care of her. By yeah. the way, you can avoid probate if you haven't already done so by putting it in joint ownership with you and herself. But still, it's in her name. Very good. You guys are very helpful. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for calling tonight. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. You can listen to our podcast online at WPTF.com. Join us next Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. on WPTF. Call us to set your appointment this week, 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
You've been listening to Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com and listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with the Lewis family.